Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we discuss Masters of the Universe. Sebastian and I'm here with Richard. Good journey, Sebastian. You know, if Richard is here, that means swords and probably magic and some sort of swashbuckling because he is the co-host most gracious and open to these genres. And uh, if you haven't guessed already, we are covering the Masters of the Universe from 1987. But before we do that, whenever I have Richard on, he is a talented writer of comic books and other medium, and I would like to have Richard plug one of his projects. Richard, what do you got for me this week? Uh, not much. Uh, my, my publisher of Fear Book Club announced they're going through bankruptcy uh, oh. uh, right before the new year. So um, don't know about a volume two, but volume one is still out there. Uh, and we're still doing the, the book plate program. So um, if you buy the book and you find me on Twitter and send me a proof of purchase, like a picture of you with the book, or your dog with the book, whatever, I will mail you a signed and personalized book plate. And it'll be like I autographed it for you in person, but you don't have to deal with me in person. So win-win. Well, and I have read Fear Book Club, and I loved it, so I highly recommend that um, everyone who's listening pick that up, especially if you like fun, supernatural, sort of uh, teenager thrillers. It's just a lot of fun. If you like Stranger Things and that sort of thing, you should definitely check out Fear Book Club. Thank you. I'm also going to try to step up my game a little bit. I'm going to do a personal plug. Uh, I'm very shy about this sort of thing and self-conscious. I don't like to promote my own writing. However, uh, a month or two ago, I was fortunate enough to have a short story that I wrote, Butane Sally and the Swamp God of Sinkhole, put up on the podcast, uh, The 
Wicked Library, which is a horror podcast that uh, showcases fiction. They're really great. They get narrators to come in and, you know, narrate the work and stuff. So it sounds like a professionally done audio book. And it's not just me doing it or whatever. It's somebody actually reading my words. Came out really good. I'm really proud of it. It's, you know, a few months back around October or whatever. And of course, I failed to promote it on this podcast. But I am going to promote it now. You can also find some of my other straight-up horror short stories. Butane Sally is sort of a post-apocalyptic Lovecraftian horror story. They were kind of doing sci-fi for a month, so I wrote something sort of sci-fi. It's not quite the stronghold. It's a little more Thundar the Barbarian, pulpy sci-fi with mutated creatures and whatnot, but um, it's a lot of fun. You can also find some of my other short stories in there, and you should just listen to the Wicked Library because they do all sorts of writers, and the guy who runs it, Daniel Fortick, is a really great guy. He's a great writer himself, and I highly recommend that you check it out, the Wicked Library. Congratulations. Oh, thanks, yeah. But, you know, we're not here to talk about the Wicked Library. We are here to talk about Masters of the Universe from 1987, the canon film's attempt to bring the He-Man and the Masters of the Universe franchise to live-action, big-budget, big-screen entertainment. Now, Richard, do you have a history with the He-Man character and the He-Man toys and the cartoon? Yeah, they were so formative in my childhood. My parents were very generous. So at the time I was an only child, my little brother wouldn't be born for another couple of years. So I had most, if not all, the action figures, and a couple of the play sets. I definitely had Castle Grayskull, not Snake Mountain. But um, yeah, I was a lucky kid and loved the toys, loved the mini comics that came with the toys. And uh, of course, the filmation animation animated series um, was a big deal. I remember my dad reading in the paper that they were making this show and him telling me that maybe so I was so excited to hear that. And then a few months later it, uh, it debuted and there were a lot of episodes. It had a huge impact on anyone who was sort of young in the eighties, the early eighties when He-Man came out, it came out around 1981. I think the toys obviously came out first. They may have came out in like 80 or whatever, but the cartoon debuted in 81 And I remember it very specifically because it kind of was a phenomenon for like a couple of years there. He-Man and then later Transformers sort of occupied the same kind of like toy cartoon space of early 80s childhood. I was just on the cusp of being too old for He-Man. I had been really into Star Wars and Star Wars figures and Star Wars toys. I would have been around... 10 or 11 when He-Man hit. And I remember it so specifically because, you know, I was obviously intrigued because, you know, here's these toys of these muscle men with swords and stuff. I mean, I think I was particularly taken by Skeletor because (laughs) if you're not familiar with the character of Skeletor, um, he's become a really fun meme. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen Skeletor memes, but they're actually pretty fun. I, I don't really like memes, but I do like Skeletor memes. But Skeletor is such an odd character because he's this muscle man, but with a skull head, which is sort of, you know, antithetical there. You'd think he'd be a skeleton, but no, he's he's got a pretty jacked physique, as do all the characters in the He-Man universe. My neighbor, who was like a year or two younger than me, was super into them. And I remember kind of feeling that moment of childhood where you're like, 
well, this is the new thing that, you know, the kids that are younger than me are into. Am I too old for this? I think I might be. And it was sort of that moment where I just had to say, well, that's for them. And I had Star Wars and that was my thing and moved on. However, the He-Man has lived on. I actually have a friend who collects all the He-Man toys and stuff, and he's in his 50s. So you're never too old to collect He-Man. Never. Um, the The toys were just so uh, colorful and fanciful. And I mean, I, I think I was maybe three or four when they first started coming out, but I'd never seen anything like that. I mean, I had Star Wars toys. I I think I had G.I. Joe by that point, too, but this was like a completely different scale and the sculpts were different. Just all the the different armor and weapons and the way it kind of blended sci-fi and fantasy. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess Star Wars had done that, too, but I, I don't know. For me, I always think of Star Wars more as sci-fi and He-Man is a little more fantasy for me. Yeah. Yeah. And also, the um, you can't forget like the beautiful painted box art on the toys and the backing cards and also just in the comics they were so evocative and it all hinted at this much larger story that was epic and scary and big and i think it, it was just kind of a lightning in a bottle sort of thing. yeah totally it sort of occupied somewhere in between conan the barbarian and star wars for me i mean obviously conan the barbarian is a more adult oriented property but you know he man looks kind of like a blonde conan he's got the muscles he's got the kind of page boy haircut um at least he did in the cartoon and in the toy form we'll talk about his haircut in the movie <laughs> i was definitely intrigued by he man i mean i think i watched some of the cartoon um, thundar the barbarian was my guy like i was big into that Love thundar yeah, another sort of plug for myself. I actually um, got the Blu-ray of Thundar the Barbarian, all of the episodes, and for a while I was just sort of recapping and reviewing the episodes. And I did a blog called Thundar the Blogbarian, and uh, people <laughs> people really enjoy it. They think it's quite funny. So go check out Thundar the Blogbarian on SebastianBendix.com. But anyways, so yeah, Thundar was kind of more my guy, you know, and I also have always been a fan of sort of like like post-apocalyptic worlds and stuff like that. So I was more into the Thunder cartoon, but I definitely had some respect and interest for He-Man. They didn't get around to making a proper He-Man uh, live-action film until 1987, and it's perhaps arguable that they ever got around to making a proper <laughs> adaptation. But by the time that the 1987 production came around, I definitely was way out of the loop. Now, this production was famously the product of Canon Films, which is a studio by the team of Golan and Globus, these Israeli film producers. Richard, do you have any sort of uh, background in Golan and Globus and their productions? Yeah, all of it bad. Because uh, I think between this and Superman 4, uh, which they they also produced, I mean, it was a uh, pretty dismal time uh, for, you know, superhero and comic book and toy movies. But, I'm, I mean, what did they do? Did they do Delta Force and Operation USA? Yeah, they did a lot of those, like, 80s action movies. They also did Life Force, which we covered on this show. So it was the trifecta of Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, Masters of the Universe, and Life Force that ultimately bankrupted canon films. I think I, I probably knew more about what 
they hadn't produced, which was a Spider-Man movie. And That's right. Around that time, there were magazines like Starlog and Comic Scene, and they would talk about all the upcoming, you know, superhero and genre movies that were in production. And they were always dangling this James Cameron Spider-Man movie uh, that was supposed to happen, and it, it never did. Um, yeah, I think because of all this stuff with um, sort of the underperformance of Masters and, and Superman Four. Yeah, well, that project went through a lot of different studios. That was like one of the earlier incarnations of it. In the mid-90s, they were hoping to do a proper, bigger budget version. And I believe Leonardo DiCaprio, before he was super famous, was even rumored to be Cameron's pick for Peter Parker. But, you know, that was all just speculative. But I have read the scriptment of that movie, which is kind of interesting. But uh, yeah, it didn't happen in at Canon Films because they shot themselves in the foot uh, badly with this movie and several others. Now, had you seen this movie as a kid? Oh, yeah. Uh, in the theaters. I, I remember when it uh, came out. I remember uh, the Miami Herald gave it two, two and a half stars. So my dad, who would always take movies, was not really looking forward to this one, but he, he bit the bullet and, uh, and took me. I actually, I, I enjoyed the movie then, and I think I like it even more now. I will say this about the movie. I do think that if you were a kid in the 80s, this movie totally works. You know, I mean, it's got pretty much anything an 80s kid would like, or perhaps even a modern day kid under a certain age. You know, it's colorful and goofy, and it's a good time. I'm definitely going to, you know, lay into it a little bit, because how can you not? I mean, it's kind of become something of a camp classic, I would say at this point. I think when it initially came out, everyone was like, oh my God, this is terrible. And then I think over time, people are like, well, there's some pleasures to be had here with Masters of the Universe 1987. But shall we dive into the film? Let's do it. Now, this is directed by Gary Goddard. So this is a Goddard film. This has French New Wave all over it. (laughs) And so we get this intro of Eternia where we're sort of zooming in on a matte painting of Castle Grayskull. And Castle Grayskull is sort of the seat of power in this magical realm of Eternia. Would you say that's an accurate uh, assessment? Uh, For the movie... Yes, I think it's a little different in the cartoon, the comics, but yeah. One thing that I find a little bit confusing just in this intro, and this is probably because, I don't know, they cut something out. We should say also, before we get into this, that this movie famously had its budget sort of slashed out from underneath it because... Um, Mattel was supposed to co-finance it. Mattel was the toy company that started the He-Man figures and everything. And apparently when it came time to pony up the money for the production, they just were withholding the money for some reason. So, you know, they had to do a lot of this without the budget they were expecting to have. There's a sequence at the end, the sword fight, which is shot in a certain way that is done entirely because... They didn't have the budget to light the set properly at that point. Well, they also started taking apart the set and selling <laughs> chunks of it away. <laughs> yeah. They foreclosed on Castle Grayskull. It was a dark day in Eternia. 
one must approach this film with a certain amount of generosity because you can almost feel the sets being pulled away, you know, as the shot pans across the, <laughs> the one major set that they have. What I find sort of odd about this intro, and I, it's probably because of budgetary reasons, you know, there's this whole setup that, you know, oh, Castle Grayskull is this important thing. We're getting this voiceover. And then we just basically cut right to Skeletor barging into Castle Grayskull and taking over the joint. Like, there's no real fight for it or anything. You know, he's got this magical MacGuffin that's going to play a big part in the story, the Cosmic Key. And we're to assume he used that to get in, right? But it's really not explained well at all. Yeah, there's a couple of sort of a throwaway line about it in the beginning. And then later on when we meet He-Man and Tila and Man-at-Arms, um, Tila and Man-at-Arms say just that, that Skeletor somehow got his hands on this cosmic key and that's what let him sort of sneak behind the attorney and defenses and take over Skull. There are out on the uh, the hinterlands of the internet, there, there are other drafts of the movie screenplay. It was written by David O'Dell, who also wrote uh, another temple trauma, uh, Supergirl. That's right. For Canon Films, yes. <laughs> and uh, Dark Crystal. So I, I guess I'm a David O'Dell fan. I actually really like the opening monologue. I think it's it's brief, but it's cool and sets the tone. And I think Skeletor is the best part of this movie. Oh, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Skeletor, because he is played by the great Frank Langella, who sadly has been sort of um, mildly canceled lately. I mean, he got kind of old mannish on a recent Netflix show or something and got canned for it. But anyway, I do love Frank Langella. I really enjoy him whenever he shows up in a movie. I love his version of Dracula. Here he is just hamming it up. Apparently he took this role because his grandson or something wanted him to do it. And he's, you know, completely beneath this mask, prosthetic mask that makes his face kind of look like a skull. I mean, this was before the time of CG, so they couldn't paint out his nose. But I do kind of love the look of him here. I, I really enjoy the facial makeup. It allows him to sort of express himself. Um, he's got those great Frank Langella eyes that sort of quaver naturally. And he's just chewing up the scenery as Skeletor. And he's certainly a highlight of the film, I would say. No, he, he takes on the role with gusto. And uh, yeah, his, he's got these neat fangs. And I don't know, I, I thought he looked great back then as a kid, and I still do. I think it's like, for the, the budget this movie had, and just for the prosthetic makeup that was available at the time, this is pretty good. That's a hard character to pull off. I mean, I think about like Ghost Rider. So there's another sort of muscle-bound character with the skull head. And I don't think, I mean, the Nick Cage movies kind of have other problems, but I never quite bought the look of that character when it was just a full... CG head. So I'm always going to come down in favor of the prosthetic skull work. I, yeah, I think the red skull in Captain America was sort of, sort of the ideal, like, because it was clearly yeah. like makeup on a face, but they just painted out the nose so you could get the skull look and that would uh, be the way to do it. Here, they try to do that. They He basically has like black prosthetic over his nose. It works. I mean, I think it's a cool look. I do 
miss the purple, though. I mean, to me, Skeletor <laughs> wears purple. He doesn't wear any purple in this movie, so I was a little bit sad. They gave him his uh, goat head staff, though. So That's true. I, I feel like with this movie, you've got to take your victories where you can. We're going to need to talk a little bit about that goat head staff, and we're also going to need to talk about He-Man's sword, because in the cartoon, the sword is sort of the, you know, the Excalibur or whatever of Eternia. And in the cartoon, He-Man has this alter ego of Adam, right? Prince Adam, who looks exactly like He-Man, only he's got a shirt on. (laughs) He-Man's a little more tan, too, I think. Right. So why anybody's not figuring out Prince Adam is He-Man, I don't know. But that is completely abandoned here. He-Man here never refers to any alter ego he has. And I also found that the sword, I really didn't understand if the sword itself had any real magic power or if it was just a really cool sword. We're never really given an, an adequate explanation in the movie, I don't think. But you know who I really enjoy also in this movie is uh, Meg Foster as Evil Lynn. Yes. Meg Foster is a character actress who I've always really liked. She has really intense blue eyes. She showed up in a lot of... Um, 70s and 80s kind of horror stuff but she's uh skeletor's major domo evil lynn and she actually gets kind of a lot to do here just in terms of uh her villainous activities yeah she's great those eyes are so piercing and i think i mean you know evil lynn i guess was never my favorite character in the the cartoon or i know i had her figure but i out i played with it that much um but i think she's great in this and she gets to do some really fun stuff where she's impersonating other characters and gets to be kind of seductive and threatening at the same time i'll just say now sebastian i'm so biased in favor of this movie i think i was (laughs) brainwashed as a kid and i think it was because like i i I agree with your earlier point It, it i think it really depends on how old you were when you first met the Masters of the Universe franchise and also how yeah. old you were when you saw this movie. Yeah. I guess for me as a kid of the 80s, I grew up with Flash Gordon, another tentacle trauma, but I loved it. And I didn't, as a little kid, all the camp factor went way over my head. So I just saw yeah. these cool sets and costumes and strange settings and I loved it. And I feel like Masters of the Universe owes a lot to, to sort of that interpretation of Flash Gordon and then also um, Gary Goddard, the director. I guess was a big comic book fan and was really trying to like push a Jack Kirby influence sure. in this movie. And and I, I definitely see that. I guess I also missed the purple and Skeletor, but I think his costume in all black looks really cool. And this was a time where in most, you know, comic book or toy based movies, they would kind of monkey with the looks of the characters anyway. They sure. Yeah. Like as faithful to the looks as, as the Marvel and DC movies are now. So I guess I was sort of accustomed to that, but I think all the characters for the most part, past the squint test, where they sort of look like the way they depicted in the toys. Well, let's get into our main man then, He-Man. Now, if you're going to make a He-Man movie in a 1987, do you have any choice but to cast Dolph Lundgren? Like, is there anyone else who could fit this loincloth? I think not. Well, the rumor was they, they went out to Sylvester Stallone, which I can't even imagine. Oh, God. <laughs> but yeah, Dolph Lundgren was... Born to play He-Man, whether he, he wants it or not. I was like, what would they have done if he didn't do it? Like, who would they have gone to? Maybe Mark Singer or something? Oh, wow. <laughs> I, mean, I know that when they were going to do, at one point, a Masters 
two, Dolph Lundgren did not want to reprise the role for some reason. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to get the, the surfer Laird Hamilton oh, okay. to play He-Man, which again, I mean, I guess he looks the part. Well, I mean, look, you know, at this point in Dolph's career, I wouldn't say he was a great actor by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know if he's ever been a great actor. I do think he has improved. I've seen him in stuff semi-recently and I was like, oh, Dolph's actually taken a few acting lessons and he's gotten his like kind of accent more under control or whatnot. Not so much here. His line readings are pretty rough. His accent's coming through, but his character has surprisingly little to do. Like, this is really more of an ensemble movie at its heart, which is why it's called The Masters of the Universe and not He-Man. But I think they kind of wisely downplay him and just kind of bring him in when they need some muscle and sword swinging. Yeah, he's um, he's not the protagonist of the movie, like in just sort of purely technical terms. I mean, if it, it's anyone, it's... Um, the Earth Kids who will meet in a little bit, uh, Julie and Kevin, and maybe Gwildor in a weird way. But yeah. sort of, they're they're the characters that arc. He man's kind of he man throughout. But um, I look Dolph Lundgren. I think he barely spoke the English language at this point. I think he does a pretty credible job, and he certainly looks the part. He's in unbelievable shape. Like his, he's got a true comic book physique in this movie. Like you can actually see like the shading on his muscles as if he was drawn. Um, so yeah, he's pretty impressive. Less impressive though is the physique that he chose for the Man at Arms character, who is played by an actor by the name of John Cipher, who I have never seen before or since. As I remember the character in toy form, he was sort of the equal to He-Man in physique, and I mean he had a mustache. But this guy is like in his fifties or something. He looks way too old to be in this adventure. Now is he the father of? T- is that what we're to presume yes yeah which is the case in the toys and the cartoon so and that the toy yeah it was the same body sculpt as he-man yeah so yeah the guy should be Dolph Lundgren stature but uh at least they got the mustache they did get the mustache and they got the helmet and stuff I mean they got the look right he really does look like a dad like that aspect of his character comes through loud and clear um, I do like Tila as played by Chelsea Field. I mean, she doesn't get a whole lot to do in the movie, but I think she's cute. Her costumes form fitting and nice to look at. Yeah, she has this weird sort of uh, like thong, yeah, butt strap <laughs> thing. That I didn't hate it. I have to. No, admit I don't no. hate it. <laughs> There's attorney in fashions. I'm sure it serves some sort of battle function. Yeah, I'm sure it was very comfortable to wear on set yeah. too. But let's get to our other main man, the Orko substitute. Orko in the cartoon was this Marvin the Martian-esque, like, little wizardy type of character. Now, they didn't go in that direction for this movie because the character, like, would float and he didn't really have a face. So they went in a different direction here and they got the greatest of all uh, little people actors, Billy Barty, to play this new character. I think they created from whole cloth, right? Gwildor. He doesn't have any place in the the mythology other than in this movie. He's kind of the wizard, even though he's not really a wizard. He is a locksmith, right? That's what his official job title is. Yeah, locksmith and inventor. And he's so great. 
I love Billy Barty. He is under a lot of prosthetic makeup, perhaps a little too much because he can barely move his lips. Like the makeup is pretty cool. Otherwise, I like his ears and sometimes his like big pointy ears will move. Like clearly they have some sort of mechanism that will do that. But um, he can't really articulate too well through the makeup, um, unfortunately. However, the Billy Barty voice is there in full force, and he, you know, delivers some great He-Man, and like, <laughs> he really does sound like a cartoon character. This will be heresy, I think, to most people, but I never liked Orko, and so for me, Gwildor is a huge upgrade. You never liked Orko? I know. Hot take. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, even as a kid, I just found him really annoying. He always messed things up. At least Gwildor can build a cosmic key. That's it's pretty impressive, you know? I like his, his little hobbit house. We find out that Gwildor has built, as you said, this device called the cosmic key, which... The prop that they made for this thing is insane. Like, I don't know who the genius was that came up with this. It kind of has, like, tuning forks, but it's on this sort of cylindrical thing with all these buttons on it and it's just absolutely nutty looking it's later going to be mistaken for a japanese synthesizer <laughs> by one of the teenager characters which is pretty hilarious the problem though i have with the cosmic key here and in the way it's implemented in this movie it's essentially our MacGuffin, right however we have two of them so we have two MacGuffins because gwildor made one for Skeletor, right? He also made a prototype. So the thing that's going to sort of set the characters on their adventure is the prototype, correct? Correct. And it was, um, Gwildor didn't knowingly make the Cosmic Key for Skeletor. I think Evelyn went to him in disguise. This is all off screen. It happened before the events of the movie and sort of tricked him into developing the final Cosmic Key for them. That's what Skeletor used to sneak past the Grayskull defenses and defeat right. the Sorceress and take control of Eternia. So now we're going into this section of the movie where they're going to go back to Grayskull and try to, I don't know, retake it or whatever, or get the other cosmic key because Skeletor is going to what? He has to wait until there's this lunar event and then what happens? Look, I know I'm getting a little pedantic about this, but I was honestly struggling with this while watching the movie. I was like, what is Skeletor trying to do? Well, I'll tell you, um, my perspective, I think, as a kid going into this, I sort of liked the way the movie began because I had seen the cartoon for a couple years up to this point. So I'd always seen He-Man fight Skeletor day after day in syndication, and He-Man always wins. And so for this movie to start with Skeletor having already won, and now He-Man is kind of like on the, the run, I thought was neat as I guess I would have been probably about nine years old at this point. So the plot, I guess it probably doesn't make a ton of sense, but I think it made enough sense. And I think the idea is that now that Skeletor has captured the sorceress and is in Castle Skull, they have this, what is it called? Like the eye, the great eye. It's like this big eye-shaped window behind him on the set. I think it's a really cool set. Um, and William Stout was the production designer. And um, I guess it's not for everyone, but I, I think he did a great job given the, the limited budget. Yeah, I mean, it's basically the only major set we get, right? I mean, yeah. it is the set of the movie. And I, I agree, it looks good. It looks good. It's got a big 
scale. I think they use two sound stages to make it and they sort of augment it with, with matte paintings, you know, which you do digitally to extend everything now, but I love the look of it. And so, yeah, there's sort of a, sort of a arbitrary ticking clock where the sorceress is imprisoned and He-Man and his pals need to free her by in a certain number of chromons. I forget how many. And mm-hmm. if they don't, and Skeletor is still kind of like at large and in, in, in charge in Eternia, he's going to gain all the powers of the universe and become the master of the universe. Right. I get that. But I guess I'm just wondering how he's got the sorceress, right? The sorceress is played by Christina Pickles, and she's just sort of this sorceress in white who more or less stands in the same place <laughs> for the entire movie. <laughs> In different uh, modes of distress, she uh, starts to sort of age at one point, I'm assuming, because of all her magical powers are being used by Skeletor. The Cosmic Key was only useful to Skeletor to gain entrance to Grayskull. It's not playing into any of this, right? At this point. Correct. Okay. That kind of clarifies things for me, because I was like, what does the key have to do with it? Because... You know, there's going to be this fight, this battle in the the Gray Skull set, and our heroes are outmatched, and so they use the cosmic key to zap themselves into another dimension, which will turn out to be 1987 California. And, you know, at one point, they go through this portal, and, like, uh, Man-at-Arms has to shoot his uh, grappling gun claw out to grab the key, and bring it into this portal into another dimension with a yoink sound effect too which is really <laughs> there's two sound effects that really stand out there's that one and strangely i think it's Gwildor's grappling hook and, okay. and not man at arms i could be wrong uh but then later on Gwildor is souped up a pink cadillac and it makes the same sound as the delorean in back to the future yeah that pink cadillac seemed to be a direct delorean grab totally yeah because yeah. he makes like a flux capacitor type device to like supercharge it. So it doesn't require gas anymore. It works on like microns or something. Ne- neutrinos. Yeah. Neutrinos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Keep your uh, attorney units of measurement straight, Sebastian. I think I drink a glass of neutrinos every day for, <laughs> to help with my uh, regularity. <laughs> What this all results in is the cost-saving measure of bringing us to 1987 California. We're going to spend a big chunk of this movie, pretty much most of the movie now, in what looks like, I don't know, Burbank or something in 1987. And for me, this was the big disappointing factor when I eventually got around to watching Masters of the Universe, which I think I probably caught it on cable, you know, just turned it on and saw it and was like, yeah, maybe I'll check out that Masters of the Universe movie. And I was like, oh, it's all going to take place in Burbank, California or wherever. This is definitely, I think, the sticking point for most people about this movie is that you know, we're not going to be in a fantasy world. We're going to be fish out of water, 80s kind of a comedy situation. It didn't bug me uh, when it came out and I saw it. I know my older cousins, they hated the movie because of that and also because they didn't get enough of the characters that they knew from the toys. And I don't know if it was, I was just sort of sort of taught to expect disappointment from, from a lot of genre movies in the time. So, <laughs> so yeah. Uh, you know, I also think like, I know I had seen 
the ads on TV for the movie, and there's obviously parts where like He-Man is running around a junkyard or it looks like a high school gym that's set up for a dance. So I knew some of it was going to take place on Earth. And then I think about some of the other movies we've covered on your show, like Crawl and Willow, which took place entirely on these fantasy worlds. And those didn't succeed. And I think like, especially with Crawl, one of the things we grappled with are like, what are the rules of the world? And like, it was never fully explained. Yeah. And so I, I think, I mean, it was definitely done to save money to, you know, setting the bulk of the movie on present day earth, present day for 1987. But I think it also like, it just made it maybe a little more gettable for a lot of the audience too. In fairness, my understanding of Eternia isn't that it's some lush, interesting Pandora-like environment. I mean, it mostly seems to be rocks and desert, right? It looks a lot like Griffith Park in uh, in some shots, but yeah. I mean, you know, Eternia in the cartoon and the comics looks beautiful. In, in the movie, not so much. It's all war-torn. So, you know, I might have not been happy with the Eternia that I got had they done it back then because I'm sure it just would have been like you know out in the desert somewhere with like a filter on the lens <laughs> that would have been Eternia but what we do get here is Courtney Cox fresh off the dancing in the dark Bruce Springsteen video that catapulted her to fame as the character of Julie. Now, Julie works at like a barbecue joint, fast food barbecue joint, and we get this tragic backstory that her mom and dad died flying like their own plane, I guess, to Catalina Island, which if you've ever lived in the Los Angeles area, like Catalina Island is like, what, I don't know, five miles off the shore or something. It's not very far so it's a real tragedy if your plane goes down trying to get to Catalina Island. And um, she's so despondent over this because she feels that it was her fault because she wanted to study that day. And that's why they took the plane. And so she's going to move to New Jersey <laughs> because she needs to get 3,000 miles away from this tragedy, she says. This backstory is pretty hilarious perfect for kids a tale as old as time really giving <laughs> the audience what they want yeah i mean it's it's so 80s because like it just watching now i'm like where was like child protective services you mean like after her parents died she's just been living in their house alone all this time yeah packing it up herself like it's all boxes and everything and how old is she supposed to be I guess like 17 or 18. I mean, she's in high school with, with her boyfriend, Kevin. And uh, anyway, she doesn't have like grandparents or like aunts or uncles or anyway. I'm assuming whatever family she has lives in New Jersey and that's why she's going there. But they don't actually say that in the movie. I mean, they don't, they don't bother to drop that line to explain why of all places she's picked New Jersey. I mean, I think that's a questionable choice for anyone to make. Uh, that was low-hanging fruit. I actually like New Jersey. It's a good state. It gets a lot of flack. Anyways, yeah, it's just sort of a real head-scratcher of a setup. And it's it's all, you know, to give her this sort of backstory that is then going to sort of play out in the movie. And I think in some kind of irresponsible ways near the end, but we'll get into it. <laughs> However, what I do like about this setup, because I always enjoy food and movies, the Eternians are going to show up, right? And they're going to stake out this barbecue joint. And 
At one point, Gwildor uses his grappling hook. So you're right. It is Gwildor's grappling hook. He uses his grappling hook to steal like a bucket of chicken and ribs from these teenagers who are making out in their car and ignoring their food. And then he like grubs down in like the woods with this bucket. At one point, he like pours barbecue sauce like all over his beard and then man at arms and uh, Tila are also sort of staking out the bark. Everybody's staking out this barbecue joint, and like man at arms is like, we can't fight on an empty stomach. <laughs> I, I don't even think Skeletor needed the cosmic key to defeat this army because they're the worst <laughs> soldiers. Like when they they land on Earth, He Man tells them all to like start searching different sectors for the cosmic key because they've been separated from it when they land on Earth, right? Yeah. And so everyone goes in different sectors, but three out of four of them all wind up at the barbecue place. (laughs) Now, man at arms says it's an old soldier's trick to follow your nose, which, okay, sure, I guess. But uh, it's just, it's so funny to look at now. Because also, like, who are these teenagers that are like, I know what we're going to do today. Let's go to the barbecue place. Let's eat some fried chicken and ribs and let's make out in my convertible. Gross. And then put the bucket in the back seat. Yeah. I mean, you got to make room for the making out, you know? <laughs> it may be my favorite scene in the movie, yeah. honestly. <laughs> I just think it's so funny. Because then, like, Man in Arms and Tila come upon Gwildor as he's pigging out, and they're like, give us some of that. And Gwildor's like, I was going to share. <laughs> and, <he's> like, <laughs> and then, like, he, Gwildor's eating, like, a rib and trying to figure out what that is. And then Tila and Man at Arms get, like, chicken wings or whatever. And then... Man at Arms somehow understands this world's cuisine and explains that they're eating animals, which freaks the other two out because apparently Eternians are all vegetarian, which is you know good on them. Yeah. But why does Man at Arms know what this is? I like to imagine in some horrible war that Man at Arms was in in the past, like they had to eat like animals and it was really traumatic. No, he ate uh, Zodak and Stratos and, and Fisto, and that's why they're not in the movie. <laughs> you had to cannibalize them. Awful Clawful would be quite delicious with some melted some butter. Melted butter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you just crack that claw open and man, you're eating good for days. <laughs> Yeah, I wish Manny Faces was in here. Can we get Manny Faces in here for crying out loud? How do you make a movie without Manny Faces? A Masters of Universe movie without Manny Faces? Probably my favorite character. I also liked uh, Mechanek. Mechanek was cool. We might as well just get into it now. That's another big drawback of this movie is that the toys had such an extensive collection of fun villains. We get one here in beast man right we do get beast man these villains are sort of deployed as like the bounty hunters and empire strikes back we get a scene where skeletor is sort of briefing them and um one of them is karg who is not a toy but he's sort of our main monster villain let's call him and there's a character called blade who's just a guy with a bunch of swords and stuff and an eye patch and beast man and we get this character, which this guy was my favorite because he was the most evocative of the toys, Sawrod. He's sort of like a lizard man, which right there you have my attention because I love lizard men. And then he's wearing this kind of cool helmet. And I'm like, all right, 
that's my guy, you know, I'm like, Saurod, he's my guy. But then Saurod ends up getting killed by Skeletor later. Like, they all screw up, and Saurod's the poor one that's got to take the blame. Yeah, kill Karg. I know, Karg's the one who's really to blame here, right? He's the guy yeah. in charge. Typical middle management, you know. Obviously, this is probably a budgetary thing or whatever, but it does seem weird that they didn't bother to just try to adapt some of the toys into characters here yeah i mean i guess you get three good guys from the toys in he-man man-at-arms and tila and you get three bad guys skeletor evil and beast man right i think beast man although he's sort of off model from the toy he's got a cool look in this movie i remember my my cousin paul saying he looked even cooler when he got ammonia thrown in his face and he got all <laughs> sort of bloody and beat up. And yeah, he's just, uh, I think the designs of these bad guys are great. It's such a bummer that Sorod gets offed so early on. Yeah, a real waste of a good lizard man, in my opinion. But uh, another connection to Flash Gordon, uh, another movie that features lizard men. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the character of Kevin as played by Robert Duncan McNeil. Julie's got a boyfriend. His name is Kevin. He doesn't want her to go away to Jersey, and he's playing in a band. Um, this actor uh, is kind of a budget Andrew McCarthy, in my opinion. He <laughs> reminds me of that actor. But what I love about this element of this character is that we're going to get like band stuff now in this movie. Like now we're in your world. We're in my world, motherfucker. Like we go to <laughs> Kevin's like, okay, before you go to the airport to go to New Jersey, can you come to my sound check? Okay. Which is just a weird thing to do in a movie. Like we're not going to do the actual dance itself. We're going to do the sound check of a high school dance. Yeah. Uh, Julie's last day in, in California involves going to work at the rib place, uh, visiting the grave site of her dead parents where they yeah. find the cosmic key. <laughs> And then going to the sound check and we've got to get right to the airport. Like, what did you do on your last day in California? Oh, well, I mean, things are going to get a lot crazier, obviously. But yeah, so on the way to the sound check, they stop at the graveyard to mourn her parents. Um, and she, at this point, confesses to Kevin that she feels guilty that it's her fault that they're dead. And then they find the cosmic key, which Kevin improperly identifies as a Japanese synth. <laughs> But, you know, he's not necessarily wrong to think that because when you press the buttons on the cosmic key, conveniently, it makes, it plays like notes. And we're going to find out later that the right combination of notes, which just also happens to be a recurring musical motif in the soundtrack, you know, is going to open up the portal to Eternia or whatever. But in the meantime, they take this thing to the high school sound check, and I'm really enjoying all the different amplifiers and everything in the background. I'm like, oh, wow, they've got a Fender Classic Reverb, too. Nice. You know, I'm, I'm geeking out on the gear. And they activate the key, and it does this sort of, like, light show. And so, of course, Kevin's like, I got to go bring this to my friend Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> who like runs the crummiest music store in all of Burbank or wherever this place is like I wouldn't shop there because he not only does he have sort of like you know low-end guitars and amplifiers but he's also got like old TVs and stereo <laughs> equipment and it's like you don't want that in a music store yeah I'll, I'll take your word for it on Charlie's music shop I, I could sort of take it or leave it I, I like the scenes with um 
with Kevin and Julie, they have good chemistry and, and Kevin has, I think sort of like some Chris Pratt vibes going on here. It's, they're both really likable. Yeah, I can see that for sure. The whole thing with Charlie is just absurd. I mean, we're going to come back to this music store again. Like this music store becomes sort of like a central-ish location for the movie, which is just weird. I think we spend more time in Charlie's music store than in Castle Grayskull. We definitely do. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm starting <laughs> to understand some of the fan outrage. Like we don't get Merman, but we get Charlie sucks right and it's not even like a guitar center type of a music store i mean that could actually be kind of fun it's it, it's more of like a pawn shop let's be honest yeah. like <laughs> that's what it looks more like but because he has activated this cosmic key the villains back in eternia can now track it now here's another question i have for you why does skeletor give a shit about this other cosmic key if he doesn't even really need the one he has i think it is he just doesn't want he-man out there on the run potentially trying to thwart him and and right. i think that combination of he-man and Gwildor, because the longer they're out there they could find a way to come back and free the sorceress and, right. and all that stuff and here's where i kind of like the fact of having the two cosmic keys because every time Kevin or Charlie or whoever activates the one on Earth, uh, Skeletor's an attorney that picks up on it and they can home in on it and send Skeletor's bounty hunters right there after them. So I, I think that's a nice little uh, efficient way to, to bring all the baddies to Earth. And it definitely brings them to Earth because they show up at the high school sound check and they chase Julie out of the high school gym and she ends up like running around in this sort of like warehouse area where there's a pizza place because there's like a pizza sign there pizza yeah just says pizza this is a very canon films type of set where it's just generic nighttime alleyways and stuff like that this is real budget conscious filmmaking here yeah it's kind of the only action beast man gets in the movie he he beats up and possibly kills the janitor carl i don't know that we see him Poor again carl yeah we do we see him alive he doesn't die he, you see him getting oh, wheeled out in a gurney and he's like you wouldn't believe what just happened in there <laughs> he, he may be paralyzed for life but he's he's still alive i was tracking carl don't you worry yeah because well, oh, there's karg and carl and i was like carl. that's a little confusing are we talking about carl or karg here sorod gets one shot off i think that's all he accomplishes before he dies and um blade does some pretty neat sword play um, when he's chasing after Julie. I think the guy who played Blade is a stuntman. He's also the one who did sort of the, the sword training for Dolph Lundgren and, and choreographed all the sword fights in the movie. I think he's got a really cool look. Mattel did actually make toys of Gwildor, Sorod, and Blade. And I know I had Sorod and Blade, and they were really neat-looking figures. They're fine designs for 80s fantasy movie characters. I think the disappointment yeah. is just they're not from the original cartoon series right. but yeah at one point blade has a sword fight with he-man right like they they go at it yeah and i i think it's a trailer moment it's i, I remember really distinctly yeah, blade saying like uh, i've been you know waiting for this for a long time we're looking forward to this for a long time you think they're gonna have this big epic sword fight it doesn't last that long i guess the backstory either in the novelization or one of the other scripts is that blade only has one eye and he lost his his other one in a previous fight with he-man ah that would make sense so he's got a score to settle well i have a score to settle with this next character that we have to talk <laughs> about because we need to talk about lubick, lubick. all right <laughs> 
this is my least favorite element of this movie. This cop character gets introduced because it's an 80s movie and we've got to have cops in there. I mean, I get it. It would make sense with all this madness going on that there would be a police involvement on some level. But we're going to get this character of Lubick played by the great James Tolkien, who I do like this actor. He's a famous uh, bald actor. I believe he was the principal on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. No, he was the principal in Back to the Future. Principal Strickler. I do like the actor. He's got a fun presence, but I don't want him in this friggin' movie. And he's constantly like showing up and kind of dragging down things and getting his nose into things that I don't want him getting his nose into. Like he's going to like strong arm Kevin for no good reason. Like he doesn't have any reason to be like harassing this teenage kid and like, what is this thing you got with you? What does this do? And following him to his house and following him to Julie's house house and we get this whole kind of chunk of the movie where it's like tolkien being a nuisance and i'm not a fan of it at all uh i completely disagree i think he's an incredibly nuanced character (laughs) we know that he fought in korea and he must have seen some heavy shit out there because he still has like really afraid of the red menace and he's calling (laughs) pinkos and he thinks the cosmic key is russian and he has a full arc by the end of the movie, he, <laughs> he learns to embrace attorney and he's going to live there with this beautiful blonde woman who he's met off screen. So, right, uh, who's inappropriately too young for him, but you yeah. know, hey, we won't <laughs> go there. <laughs> it's such a weird note to end on because Lupic is like such a small part of this movie and he gets like this really happy ending that right. I'm like, fine, sure, I, I guess. I mean, I wasn't too concerned about his fate anyway, but hey, if he's happy... So much the better. This movie assumes that you love Lubick. Like, everybody loves Lubick. We want to know what happened to Lubick. Like, oh, Lubick's going to get laid. It's great. <laughs> He's like, yeah, this is my retirement or whatever. I'm still waiting for my Lubick action figure. And did anybody invite Lubick to stay in eternity? Uh, I don't remember hearing anything. No, that's say. the other thing. Yes. Yeah, like, <laughs> he did blow away a couple of uh, Skeletor's henchmen. He played his part in Freeing the Sorceress. Yeah. I guess, yeah. I don't know. If I was an Eternian, I'd not be wanting Lubick to stay. I'd be like, no, you can go home, Lubick. (laughs) But we digress. After uh, Skeletor expresses his displeasure with the bounty hunters that he sent after our heroes and kills Saurad, he puts Evelyn in charge. And Evelyn actually gets some shit done. Like, she manages to capture Kevin after Lubick goes off on his own and takes the cosmic key to Charlie because Kevin's word isn't good enough for him. So he's got to go interrogate Charlie at his crummy music store. But uh, Evelyn shows up and interrogates uh, Kevin with this mind control collar, which is, you know, kind of fun because we get this sort of hologram projection of the cosmic key. I appreciate that Evelyn gets shit done, you know, like you put her on the job and she'll make shit happen, that Evelyn. And look good doing it. Yeah, with those piercing blue eyes. You know, what this all leads to ultimately is a music store fight, okay? (laughs) It's fun for a gear nerd like myself to see a music store get shot up by lasers. Although, like I pointed out, a lot of this stuff is some real low-end stuff and old stereo speakers from the 70s getting blown up or whatever. What I do like about this scene is we get this creepy moment where... 
evil Lynn disguises herself as Julie's dead mom and stands outside of the store and coaxes Julie into giving the key over to her by telling her that her parents had to fake their deaths like they were some sort of like government agents that had to fake their own deaths and that they really need that device that she happens to have so handed over it's kind of a fucked up thing to put in this movie <laughs> yeah well Evelyn Lynn had a job to do and, and she did it and uh, I, I like uh, Courtney Cox's reaction when she finds out it's not her mom it's kind of like this great sort of horror movie screen where she's like running her hands through her hair and shaking her hair. And I don't know why that just always stuck with me. How do you feel about Courtney Cox in this movie? I mean, she's super cute. I think she's great. Like I, I really like Julie and, and Kevin. I think a lot of times in these movies, the human characters can be kind of annoying because um, they're, they're sort of always playing catch up to, to what all the fantasy characters already know and what people in the audience already know. But uh, I, I like them. I'm, I'm rooting for them as ridiculous as her backstory is i i feel for her and want her to be happy and want her to survive this thing yeah i mean she's obviously a presence that is going to go on and become uh successful later on friends and then the scream franchise so like clearly there's you know charisma there and stuff i do feel a little bad for this character because essentially they end up writing her out of the movie more or less by giving her a leg injury and then she just becomes sort of a ticking clock, a reason for them to have to hurry and save the day so that they can save her. Her character gets sort of sidelined for the climax, which is sort of weird because she is sort of the protagonist, right? Yeah, you you meet her first on Earth and so you really feel like it's going to be her her story there and then Kevin kind of takes over and, and sort of becomes the the hero by the end and figures out how to work the cosmic key when kind of nobody else can. I feel like that's sort of the central flaw of this movie, ignoring all the other things about it that one might have qualms with, is that there isn't really a main character. Different sections feel like they have a main character, but it switches, like you said. Now it's going to be Kevin. Now it's going to be Lubick. Now it's going to be He-Man. It's lacking a sort of central character holding it all together. Yeah, I, I think that's a really fair criticism. Well, let's talk about the big set piece of Skeletor on Main Street, USA. Evil Lynn uses the cosmic key to summon Skeletor, right? And so he shows up on this big flotilla-like transport, which I actually think is pretty cool. Yes. I like his transport. I like that it hovers. There's like a shot of it going down the street as if it's like a parade float or something. And they're shooting from below to kind of give it some weight and gravitas. But it's fun. And you see kind of like the trees of the street going by as Frank Langella's just kind of like sitting in this thing just loving life i think the score really helps sell that moment too i think overall the score is actually pretty good it was uh, done by bill conti you know it's definitely got kind of shades of of superman and star wars in there i think it works it elevates it yeah it has that sort of um almost corman era type of vibe to it and i mean this whole movie kind of does i mean it feels like kind of a corman film but which is true of all of uh canon films you know another fun thing that gets introduced here is we get these air sentries which are sort of like blacked garbed and helmeted 
guys who fly around on these like hover discs and for a movie of this budget you know these aren't like groundbreaking special effects in any way but you're definitely at least at this point getting some sort of sci-fi action pew pew fun with laser (laughs) beams and whatnot yeah um there was a planet hollywood in miami uh when i was growing up and they had i guess one of the maquettes of the air centurions there it was my favorite prop in all of uh planet hollywood oh forgive me yes it's air centurions that's right i wrote it down as air sentries uh centurions is way cooler than sentries and they were cool looking bad guys they didn't make toys out of them either but um you know i think there's sort of this um fun sequence where he-man takes out one of them and he jumps on their flying disc and they sort of have a little dog fight and, and right above uh, main street there we get to see he-man use the uh, sword of gray skull a little bit Again, the sword is really underutilized in this movie. I mean, I was just under the impression that the sword was like the thing. Like, if there was going to be a MacGuffin of the movie, I would have thought it would have been the sword. Like, who's going to get the sword? Because once you have the sword, then you have the power, right? Or am I wrong? That's a great point. Is the sword not giving you the power? (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, totally true. Well, I mean, like, you know, a few minutes from now, Skeletor is going to have the sword and all he does with it is like puts it on this scabbard by his throne and doesn't do anything with it. Like, isn't that the power? I feel like this just has not been nailed down clearly enough, like in the writer's room. Like, let's talk about the sword. How much power is it? Do you need the sword to rule the universe? Like, what's going on with the friggin' sword? No, you're right. It's like they, they kind of put the emphasis on sort of the wrong parts of the franchise in this movie. Yeah. Like attorney is such a big setting. Okay. They couldn't afford it. So you can't film it there. And you have your choice of all these different characters and some of the ones they chose are, and some of the ones they excluded are a bit of head scratchers, but then yeah, the, the sword is like the thing. And in the toys, Skeletor sort of had his own, half of the sort of grace that's right and like that's i mean if you're gonna have two props that everyone's fighting over is MacGuffins, i like the cosmic key i think it's fun but there's probably a way where it could have been the two halves of the sword i always really liked that about the toys if you got skeletor yeah. you got one half and you got he-man you had the other and you could put them together and then yeah that's what it was if you put them both together then you had the power right i think so it was just like something that was built into the toys themselves that was just kind of hinted at this bigger story even if you didn't read about it in the comics like well that's weird they fit together i don't know if it was just mine but the the rubber swords the tips when you put them together they never quite matched up right like a peeled (laughs) banana on the top (laughs) that that kind of killed the illusion for me but yes good point about the the swords they should have done more so what happens after this battle on Main Street is that He-Man basically has to give up to Skeletor. I'm a little fuzzy on this. Do you remember exactly why? Well, He-Man um, uses Gul'dor's grappling hook again to take the, the Cosmic Key back from Evil Lynn. But by this point, Skeletor and all his guys there, they've sort of tracked Kevin and Julie and Man-at-Arms and Teela and Gul'dor. And so they have all them captured, and He-Man shows up, and he puts up a valiant fight, but they're outmanned, right? And Skeletor's going to kill his friends if he doesn't surrender. Yeah, and he's zapped Julie in the leg, and that's why she's got that really gross, pussy wound that's going to yeah. slowly kill her. So I think He-Man just sort of gives himself over to Skeletor as long as he doesn't harm any of his friends. Skeletor and all his forces go back to Eternia with He-Man, both Cosmic Keys, 
and um, I guess everyone else is exiled on Earth. Yeah, I appreciate the fact that Skeletor really just wants to like chain He-Man up in his throne room and just kind of mock him and belittle him and it's like <laughs> skeletor is really sadistic like he could just kill he man but no he wants him not just chained up in a dungeon either like right there in front of everybody he man's in chains and stripped of most of his armor and very homoerotically sort of prostate before skeletor i won't get into it now but i think if you google gary goddard uh and and you learn a little more about his uh, personal life and maybe some of the trouble that he's gotten into lately uh-huh. <laughs> i don't think jack kirby was his, his only influence uh in this movie we'll leave it at that so yeah basically now our heroes have to figure a way to fix the key because the key's been sort of damaged right right and Gwildor can't get it to work the way it's supposed to, and Kevin uses his knowledge of musical theory, basically, to figure out a way to re-trigger the key, and it's pretty great because he like gets his synthesizer and he like patches it into the key, and like Gwildor's like, what's that? <laughs> he has to go back to Charlie's yeah. to get the synthesizer. And to be fair, they did set up earlier in the movie, like, every time Kevin is activating the cosmic key, like, he's hearing the tune and he's repeating it. And right. he was even, during the sound check, I think he was playing it on his keyboard there. So, like, he's got it in his head. Yeah. As a kid, I hated this part because it seemed so convenient, but I, I kind of love it now. Uh, Gwildor's like, well, I guess it'll work, but I also need, like, some other equipment. I need a Basonic Tesseract which Tila has on her. It's on her arm. Right. And, uh, and he, then he needs an octode rectifier and man at arms says, <laughs> I have an octode rectifier. And so in pretty short order, they, they're able to, to clutch together a barely working cosmic key. Yes. That is sort of annoyingly convenient. However, what I like about that is in the sort of fantasy sci-fi properties, we always see this, this costuming in which these are little doodads are just sort of pasted onto people's like pauldrons or their breastplates right. <laughs> or whatever. And at least in this case, they actually do something, you know, like in star Wars, people are always wearing some sort of like cylindrical, like gizmo on their chest that never factors into anything. And you know, whatever it's a, what, it, what, what is one of these things called? Uh, well, the, uh, octode rectifier. Yeah. Maybe it's an octode rectifier. You don't know. Never leave home without it. But yeah, so they all get sucked back to Returnia, but most annoyingly because Lubick just can't let this shit go. He's like creeping up on them with like a sawed off shotgun and like a whole squad of cops or whatever, like ready to blast them, like to kill these teenagers and these people, these freaks. Well, he thinks they're pinkos. So it's somehow <laughs> seeing Gwildor, uh, thinks it's a Russian spy, but all right, Lubick. He, Lubick really needs to like read some books on Russia because if he yeah. thinks that these people are what Russians look like, he's got another thing coming. That is not how people looked in Soviet Russia in the 80s. They were much more drably attired. But I, I actually like the kind of effect of all this. Like Lubick crashes the party, right? And because he does that, when everyone gets transported back to Castle Grayskull, like they've taken a big chunk of Earth with them, like part of the pink Cadillac and yeah. the, like the set that they were just around and 
I, I always thought that was a fun detail. Totally. I enjoy that. I always forget about it until it happens in the movie. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that is cool. You get this sort of like chunk of the set showing up in Eternia. Um, so, yeah, we get a big pew pew laser fight in the Castle Skull set. And Skeletor levels up with some crazy Jack Kirby inspired armor. He's got this like golden helmet that looks kind of like Galactus's helmet. But it's got like bat wings on the back. It's pretty nutty. Love it. He even gets his uh, goat staff, turns gold. That's right. But yeah, here's where I'm talking about. Like, he has the sword, and then he kind of, like, uses it, sort of. But then, like, He-Man gets the sword from him again, and then he just fights Skeletor with his staff, and they have this, like, weird sword fight that, like I said in the beginning, like, suddenly the set becomes very poorly lit and there's just a few lights on the set here and there. And that's apparently because yeah, they literally didn't have the money to shoot this. And so all they could do is set up some lights and there was only like a few people there to actually film these scenes. Yeah. Well, uh, a couple of things Um, in an earlier draft of the script, when the man at arm and Tila and Golder group, when they teleport back to Eternia, they wind up in the tunnels under Castle Grey Skull. And when they're down there, they free a whole bunch of other characters. And you would think these would be characters from the toys. They are not. They're other new characters. But one guy, I think he's called like Wizoid or Wizard. He is the one who heals Julie's leg. Ah, uh, okay. And there was, there was another guy who was like ha- literally half man, half machine. And somebody else with, I think, like an arm that would blast off. And then there was one guy called Mirror Man who was covered in mirrors. I kind of picture like a giant like human disco ball. Uh-huh. And the mirrors would absorb blasts from enemies and then redirect it back at them, which I think would have been an awesome Masters of the Universe toy. But uh, anyway, we don't get that. They just get teleported right to the throne room. Oh, that is too bad. That sounds fun. Yeah. The legend goes that for various reasons, uh, Golan Globus just like pulled the plug on this movie with three days left to shoot. And the last thing they hadn't gotten was the final climactic battle between He-Man and Skeletor. And so Gary Goddard himself had to front the money to, to film the ending with what was left of the set and probably like what few lights were left. And so you get sort of this weird black box theater sword fight between he-man and skeletor and um i don't mind it i know you guys have talked on the show before about like sort of like in the modern day blockbusters how everything gets really cgi heavy and you just start to i feel this way i lose interest you know it just all becomes like all this visual information i can't process and so i kind of like this really stripped down version and he-man and skeletor have these great lines about this is our final battle and so there's even though it's very lo-fi for me as a kid and even now when i watch it i get kind of like a bit of an epic feel from it kind of works in its own weird way like it's commendable that given the lack of resources they managed to sort of pull something off because it's an 80s uh movies the villain needs to fall into a bottomless pit (laughs) and um that's what happens to skeletor we get a classic uh 80s shot of frank langella in the skeletor costume falling into some nameless pit they just happen to be fighting over because you know when you have a sword fight it needs to be over a a bottomless pit or or why are you even bothering yeah most people think the sword fight ends with somebody getting stabbed but in actuality (laughs) that falling is usually the main cause of death so yeah skeletor is vanquished 
or is he? The heroes have won. Uh, Sorceress is restored to her youth. Um, Christina Pickles had a really good gig on this set because she basically just stood in the same spot the whole time. Good for her. Now, does she heal Julie? I kind of forget how Julie is healed. I guess off camera. I don't think she does much during, like, it's not like she's firing a laser gun in this final battle either. Lubick blows away a couple guys. Kevin shoots a couple. Man-at-Arms and Tila take, take out some baddies, but I think Julie's still pretty hurting at this point. But yeah, yeah, so Sorcerer seals her. And as we covered, Lubick has found his inappropriately young girlfriend and plans to stay, even though I don't think he was invited to do so. <laughs> um, and Julie and Kevin are given this magic item, this sort of little ball keepsake, which... I guess means that they can return someday if they want to. It's unclear as to what it's supposed to do. Just remind them of the great time they had, I guess. It's like a tchotchke from Eternia. It kind of a lame gift from the sorceress. I mean, they did just help save the universe. Yeah, you'd think you'd get something a little bit better. Well, actually, though, Julie does get a very good gift because Gwildor sort of drops this line of like, well, I can send you back now with the key. I could send you back at any time, in fact. So, of course, you know, why wouldn't Julie have herself sent back before her parents died so that she can save them? She forgets to mention this to Gwildor very stupidly, but I think we are to assume that Gwildor has already figured this out to do this, even though I don't think Gwildor knows about the parents being dead does he was that ever discussed in front of gwildor not in the earshot of gwildor is gwildor just bad at using the key and just did it by accident I, you know the more we talk about it the more i realize most of the characters are pretty inept in this movie <laughs> you know like they just nobody quite does their job right except evil lynn yeah evil lynn is by far the most competent character in this movie by far yeah oh wait what happens to evil lynn how does she die she and Beastman and karg escape oh okay they make a strategic retreat when when he-man has like escaped from his bonds and, and he and skeletor are about to do their final battle so they'll live to fight another day as well yes so yeah julie wakes up in her bedroom at her house all of her stuff is there she hasn't packed up everything she's in this really unflattering middle-aged lady nightgown <laughs> it is the worst part of the movie it is the ugliest <laughs> thing in it it is, I just can't, what teenager is this? Who, who is Julie Winston? What a, what a conundrum. Just living on her own after her parents are dead, working in a barbecue joint, wearing like a grandmother's nightgown. It's really <laughs> yeah. awful, marmy thing. So weird. What a weird choice. Yes, it is weird. I mean, look, you know, I appreciate that they weren't going for the cheesecake here, but come on, we got to do a little bit. I mean, even sweatpants or something would have been better than this thing. Yeesh. No, even like when, when she wakes up and her mom's alive, like her mom is wearing a nicer outfit that like a more youthful outfit than Julie is. <laughs> yeah. And then the worst thing is that they make poor Courtney Cox run around the streets of Glendale in this yeah. thing when she's looking for Kevin. Like, oh, that's the most embarrassing part of this whole movie. Oh, it's great. No, she, okay. She wakes up, she realizes her parents are still alive. And so she's like, don't go to Catalina today. Don't fly to Catalina today. I'll stay and go to the beach with you or whatever. And then they're like, no, we're, we're going to go to Catalina. You stay home and study. And she's like, no. And she grabs her father's plane keys, which I guess are just on the counter and like wraps them in a newspaper and then goes running out into the street 
in this terrible nightgown. And then Kevin just happens to arrive right there. And he's got that little ball that the sorceress gave them and remembers their adventure or whatever. It's a bad way to end your fantasy movie, (laughs) no matter how you slice it. It, It's a happy ending. And when they look into the ball, they see He-Man say, I have the power, which is half of his catchphrase. I have the power. Yep. That's the classic line. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And so at that point, I'm like, okay, I, I've watched the movie. I walk away. I let the credits play out. And as I'm like going to like make myself a snack or whatever, suddenly I hear something happen and I turn around and lo and behold, there is an end credit stinger, which I don't think I ever knew was on this. I only caught the very end of it. I saw Skeletor's face. So fill me in here. I tried to like rewind it on Amazon, but their like rewind feature is terrible. It's really hard to scroll on Amazon for whatever reason. So I was like, oh, I don't want to go through the whole movie again. I'm just going to rely on Richard here to explain to me (laughs) how Skeletor has come back in this last uh, stinger. How does he come back? Finally, I feel such purpose in life. (laughs) Now I know what I'm here for. Uh, Well, it just, it's a shot of uh, just this like bubbling pit of goo and Skeletor pops up from it and says, I'll I'll be back, which I think is like the Terminator's line. Get your own line, Skeletor. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it. I must have seen this movie probably like 20 times as a kid before I finally, I'm sure we like taped it off of HBO or whatever. And it was probably like on the 20th or 30th viewing that I let it play all the way through the credits and saw that. It's a really nice surprise. I didn't realize he was coming out of a, a bubbling vat of goo or whatever. So we're to assume that Skeletor fell into that goo from the sword fight. Yeah, the, the pit is not so bottomless. It was a fortuitous pit of goo. Well, sadly, though, Skeletor would not be back, at least not uh, in this form, uh, as this movie cost $22 million, which in 1987 money is a lot. I mean, that's not small budget. So, I mean, Canon was putting it all in or as much as they could in to make this a, a big movie. And the worldwide gross was only 17. So that is bad. And as I said, it helped to bankrupt Canon along with Superman 4 and Life Force. So this movie definitely earned its tentpole trauma status and like killed this franchise stone cold dead. I mean, they've tried numerous times to do a Masters of the Universe live action reboot. Like I remember it like John Woo or somebody was attached to it for years and yep. it's gone through all sorts of hands. I mean, over and over and over. I mean, I, I think that they still have one in pre-production or something even to this day i think there's been one recently announced i think it's the guys who directed the lost city it was a movie with sandra bullock oh, yeah. and channing tatum that came out last year which is actually a really fun movie yeah i liked um, it i think they're attached to direct it as a live action feature but at netflix and i don't with all the cost cutting going on over there you know who knows if they're gonna give us a really huge budget masters of the universe movie I mean, I'll be interested to see it. I watched a little bit of that Kevin Smith cartoon reboot, and I didn't really care for it too much. But 
I, I would be curious to see another attempt at this, you know, with some budget attached to it. I would hope, though, that they would at least give some serious beefcake, you know, and have a shirtless man in a loincloth as the central character. Like, I hope they don't try to cover up He-Man too much. I'm here for the pecs. I'm here for the thigh muscles best case scenario casting for this role now would be like chris hemsworth right i mean he'd never do it in a million years but i mean his thor character is more or less he-man anyway right i don't know i i still think dolph lundgren looks pretty good yeah dolph could definitely pull it off if not the he-man role he could definitely be uh one of the other characters maybe he-man's mentor or something he could be he-man's dad king randor is that he-man's dad yeah oh and here's a little uh, fun fact for the movie there's another scene that they they didn't shoot from an earlier draft in the script where at some point when they're in the uh, tunnels under Skull, he-man reveals to kevin and julie what is it it's an american flag and it's like some wreckage from a nasa ship and you find out that he-man's mom was an earth astronaut who came and, and so basically all the human characters on eternia originated in earth ah. so eternia is not just in a different part of the universe it's it's in the future too well fun easter egg i kind of like that yeah would have been cool to see it would explain why all the characters understand each other, and as soon as the Eternians arrive on Earth, they speak to the kids without any problem whatsoever. No translator needed. Maybe that was the, what was it? The Octode Rectifier? Maybe that's what it was doing all the time. Yes. Pretty sure that's what it's rectifying, is uh, speech. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Richard, well, let me ask you, why do you think it failed? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. I love this movie, but it, I don't know who it was for ultimately. Like if you were a Masters of the Universe fan, you were probably disappointed because it didn't have a lot of the stuff that you already loved from the franchise, right? Yeah. And if you come into it cold, not knowing anything about He-Man or the Masters of the Universe, I mean, I think it's a fun movie, but it's, it's pretty low budget. You feel it. Although I think like the music and the production design and like the performance from Frank Langella, like they they elevated it as much as they could. And I think like they, they were able to eke out as much of that $22 million budget as they possibly could have. I just want to point out that $22 million is like the same amount of money that like Empire Strikes Back cost. Really? <laughs> All right. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's a few years before, but I mean, you don't see it on screen. That's the problem. I'm sure that money went somewhere else or something. It didn't go to the movie. You know, I wonder, I mean, 22 may have been the reported budget or that was the initial budget. But like Mattel, I don't think, I mean, they were definitely late to put in their half of the money, but I don't know that they ever put in all the money. Yeah. And then also Golan Globus, they slashed the budget towards the end too. Yeah. So I'm not sure if 22's final final or if that's what, what the original budget was supposed to be. Right. But I, you know what? I, I really, I think, first of all, it opened the same weekend as a James Bond movie. Yeah. It was the first Timothy Dalton one. Living Daylights, yep. Pretty stiff competition. That's like, if you've got a choice between two action movies, which one are you going to go see? And the other thing is, um, I think this movie may have come out just a little too late. Yeah. You know, they they said that like the, the Heat Masters Universe toy sales um, started dropping around the same time as the release of this movie, and they blamed the movie for it. I think the toy sales were just dropping anyway. Like you said, it came out in 1981, right? Mm -hmm. So this is six years later, and that doesn't seem like a long time, but there are all these other toy properties out there like Transformers and G.I. Joe. Ninja Turtles is right around the corner. And um, I think they just didn't capitalize on, on the property at the right time or in the right way. 
I 100% agree with your assessment. And I guess the only thing that I would add to that, other than the fact that it just isn't that great of a movie, is the fact that, and and this ties into that, and that is I just don't think canon made good movies. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) uh, unfortunately, I think they were the wrong studio to do this. Like, if you're going to do this too late, then you at least need to bring your A game, I think. And canon doesn't bring the A game. At least they didn't. I mean, I enjoy Life Force for what it is, but it's kind of a bad movie. I don't think they ever made a truly great movie. That was not their business model. No, that really kind of wasn't. And I mean, you know, they spawned a whole industry of movie companies. I worked for one called uh, New Image slash Millennium Films. And I can tell you from the ground, the last thing those guys cared about was making a great movie. You know, eventually they they would go on to make decent movies, the Millennium guys, but they didn't care about that kind of thing. That was not the priority. Let's just put it that way. And I think that was just sort of the ethos at Canon. And that's the wrong person for the job if you're going to try to make the Star Wars of the 80s as they build this as. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you can blame uh, a lot of different factors in the reduction of the budget and whatnot. But I think that the problem really stems with canon. I don't think they were purveyors of good quality films. And uh, so that's not what you got. Although I do enjoy their movies. I do enjoy them. I do too. And there's a great documentary about Golan Globus. And, oh, yes. And I forget the name of it, but that's a really fun watch. I, I don't. I, I wouldn't put it all on He-Man's shoulders for like the, the collapse of canon. Like I think they got a lot of their budgets by trading junk bonds and, yeah. and that market sort of cratered around this time in the eighties too. And, and yeah, they didn't make good movies. I mean, you, you called it, that's kind of the main thing. It's not a great movie. Well, it's, I don't think it's ever a good business model either to take a property and lowball it. I mean, that was the problem with Superman four, you know, I mean, Superman yeah was a reasonably robust franchise. I mean, Superman 3 had sort of tarnished the well a little bit, but you could have come back from that and made another good Superman movie with Christopher Reeve in the 80s, and then they they cheaped out on that, and look what happened. It's just not the way to make these kind of movies. Canon is a fine business model if you want to make like a Charles Bronson revenge thriller but not if you're going to try to step into the Spielberg Lucas arena. Like you just can't do it like that. Yeah. You have to go in like the best you can. No, they, they were definitely uh, out of their weight class with this type of movie. I still love it. I think it's, um, you know, kind of like a hopeful movie and a positive movie. I did write down this one quote that man at arms says, cause you know, they're, the greeting throughout the whole movie is good journey. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And at the end, uh, Man at Arms uh, explains uh, the way they say that because uh, they believe on Eternia uh, to love the journey. For every destiny is but a doorway to another. And uh, what a nice, zen, mindful kind of message. I really like that. So that, that's what I choose to take with me. I think that's a great message to take with you. That resonated with me too, especially on this uh, journey through life. So there you go, you know, Masters of the Universe. The movie from 1987 can help you on your journey through life. Richard, do you have anything else to add before we leave Eternia here? Just that I really appreciate that even though they cut a lot of corners with this movie, they never sort of looked down their nose at the subject matter or the source material. I felt like they treated it with about as much respect as you could get in the 80s. I think in, in a time when Hollywood was still 
reacting to the old Batman show from the 60s where anything like comic book or toy was Biff Bam Pow. They tried to treat it seriously and even to the part where like uh, Skeletor's quoting Shakespeare in it. I just appreciated that as a kid and I still appreciate it now. Though it does beg the question of how Skeletor knows Shakespeare, but <laughs> we won't get into that. I will say to your point too, that this movie is a fun companion piece to movies like Flash Gordon from 1980 and Barbarella. And, you know, if you like that kind of campy fun, I mean, I think it's sort of unintentionally campy, but you know, this movie can be enjoyed on that sort of level. If you like 80s, 70s camp sci-fi fantasy. And everyone looks really good in it. Dolph Lundgren looks great. Evelyn, Tila and Courtney Cox are all hot. Uh, even Skeletor's, I think, really sexy. Yeah. And it, you know, those eyes, and he's wearing this hood, and he's just kind of glowering all the time. Come for Lubick, but stay for Skeletor. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to go pour barbecue sauce on my beard, plug my synth into the cosmic key, and steal the keys to my dad's plane in my terrible nightgown. <laughs> That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon. <laughs>